Go ahead and open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4. Seven weeks ago, we sort of set out to declare and define the vision for Van City Church within this very specific idea of apprenticing Jesus of Nazareth. And our hope, simply stated, is to build and rebuild our church around the three lifelong goals of discipleship, which are to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Now, I imagine if we're honest with ourselves and uh, with one another, we can all agree that we're sharing a sort of volatile moment in American history. Um, long ignored and overlooked evils are sort of boiling to the surface in a new way, and the world around us is angry and hurting and afraid, which is nothing new, but this particular season I think is unique. And I mention this because it is in the hour of darkness that the disciple of Jesus is most needed to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. Which again begs the question that we've been posing over and over again throughout the series. How are we transformed into such a person that can be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did? For the last two weeks, we've been working our way through a spiritual formation paradigm. Thus far, we've covered teaching and practice in detail. And this evening, we've come to community on the right side of the graph there. This idea of community is so vital in the process of our formation that we're going to spend a few weeks unpacking just how instrumental a role community plays in our transformation. Uh, Mother Teresa famously said that loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. Uh, a 2001 survey revealed that one in eight Americans described themselves as lonely. The same study conducted a decade later revealed that the number had doubled. And interestingly, it was along the same developmental trajectory of social media. Hmm. Um, in another wide study, the number of people who claimed to have, quote, no one to discuss important matters with had more than doubled over the same span of time. Sociologists have observed that following the 1960s, involvement in any sort of community whatsoever has declined drastically across America. So whether it's book clubs or political activist groups or sports teams or bowling leagues, all of them are in rapid decline. In our context, the fact that fewer people than ever attend church every Every week and every year is a noteworthy thing, but that's only a glimpse into a larger portrait of decay. Fewer Americans than ever before are interested in belonging to a community. And perhaps one reason that this sort of escapes our notice is the fact that we've been issued blinders, and they come in the form of, you know, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or text messaging or FaceTime or Skype or, or this illusion of community. And interconnectedness and community are not the same thing. Um, sociologist Sherry Turkle, one of the leading experts on the effects of technology, had this to say in her book, Alone Together. We are lonely, but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then easy connection becomes redefined as intimacy. Put otherwise, cyber intimacies slide into cyber solitudes. For you and I in 2016, community is less ordinary than it has ever been before. So as with everything along this complicated road we call life, the apprentice looks to the master in order to learn a better way. Now, 
Let's read from Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I know we've read this before in the series, but what I want us to notice about this particular passage is that Jesus begins by calling multiple disciples, not just Peter and Jesus, but Peter and Andrew and James and John. Of course, these were uh, Torah-observing Jewish boys. But interestingly, Jesus does not call only the religious. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, let's read beginning in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, same exact thing. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, we've read this before, but Matthew, as a tax collector, was uh, in league with Rome, in league with the oppressor. Think of him as something like a, a Jewish informant for Nazi Germany. His circle of friends consisted of more tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners, which is sort of a first century term for non-observant Jews. So already, you've got Peter and James and, and these uh, Torah-observing young men, and then you've got uh, the traitor, the Benedict Arnold and his friends. So there's a strange spectrum represented amongst Jesus' followers. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Let's start in the very first verse. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. When you're reading this, uh, uh, you might think, uh, wait, Simon the Zealot? Uh, Zealots were this insurgent group who so loathed the oppressor, who so loathed Rome, that they employed violence and guerrilla warfare to fight back against the oppressor. Zealots were often called dagger men, uh, based on their tendency to hide daggers in their robes in order to sneak up behind a Roman soldier and slit his throat. Common work for the Zealots. So, um... Now you've got an even stranger spectrum of people represented amongst Jesus' followers. Imagine like the pickup truck driving member of the NRA standing next to like an urban vegan cyclist, you know, an APETA activist, and multiply that dichotomy by 10, and they're both in the same community under the same teacher doing life together. And there were personality discrepancies as well. Peter seems to have been loud and brash and headstrong, while Thomas was this introspective sort of cynic, if you know the story. Um, James and John earned this nickname, Sons of Thunder, which seems a bit self-explanatory, while Judas, he becomes known as the betrayer. The point is that Jesus deliberately arranges his community by drawing from a radically wide spectrum. It stands to reason that such a group would often face noteworthy obstacles in learning to get along with one another. And we know this to be true from the text. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20. 
Let's read uh, one story of these guys not being able to get along with one another. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Which I think must have been embarrassing. You know, mom. Verse 22. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared uh, by my father, which is just Jesus for no. Um, Verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So like any normal community, people are mad at one another. And understandably so, I think if you read the story. Your friends have have gone behind your back with their mom and asked for special favors from the teacher. Um, And Jesus understands this to sort of be ordinary human behavior. Read verse 25. Jesus called them, his disciples, together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I want you to sort of look for a pattern here. There's, the, there's this, um, this ideal of community, and then there's the reality of community. And our discipleship happens in that space in between those two things. Um, the pattern continues throughout the New Testament. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Once you're there, we're going to read one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament about early disciples of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, let's read beginning in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they, had, they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Unbelievably beautiful. I mean, how can you read such a thing and not feel the disconnect between the text and the church as we know it? Now turn over to Acts chapter 5, verse 1, the very next story. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Jeez. (laughs) Um... This is the exact same church from the story prior. So all that talk about all the believers were one in heart and mind wasn't exactly exhaustive, I guess. At least two of them are big fat liars, it seems. 
So there's the ideal. There's the best case scenario. This is when it works. This is when it's beautiful. And then there's the often messy reality. Yeah, but sometimes someone does something like this. Um, and our discipleship to Jesus unfolds in that space in between, the ideal and the reality. Here's a quote from the founder of a famous Jesus community in Switzerland. Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints and heroes or at the least most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through this second period, they come to a third phase, that of realize and of true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. I think that his three stages of community are incredibly accurate. So you have the idealization, which maybe, you know, his, his sounds a bit hyperbolic to you that everyone's wonderful, but there's the ideal of community. You get into the thing, this is going to be great, we're all going to have a blast, eat food, wonderful, pumpkin pie. Um, then comes the disenchantment. I think that that's probably something of an inevitability. And then after that is commitment. Of course, the tragedy is that so many of us Never make it beyond stage two. So tonight, here are a few thoughts on community that I hope might pastor you forward in your journey. First, and perhaps most stark and concrete, is that community is non-optional for the disciple of Jesus. Again, Jesus did not call a single disciple, but disciples. Throughout the biographies of Jesus, we never read about just Jesus and Peter, uh, but Jesus and the twelve, or at the very least, Jesus and the three. <laughs> uh, Paul's letters are addressed to churches whom he presupposes community is the normative mode of life. He talks about it as though that's a given. Even letters that Paul addresses to individuals deal with life in community. No one writes, hey, by the way, make sure that you live in community with other people because they seem to presuppose there is no other option for those who belong to the way or those who are disciples of Jesus. And accuse me of legalism or twitch it, the statement, but listen, you cannot follow Jesus alone. You can't. You cannot separate your discipleship to Jesus from your involvement in community, specifically the church with a capital C. To do so is like imagining a marriage in which each spouse occupies a separate home. Or if you prefer the metaphor the Bible itself favors, the church is a family. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you are adopted into God's family, just like Cam was talking about a few minutes ago. We are disciples, we're apprentices of the teacher, but we are also brothers and sisters on a shared journey, adopted into the same family. So imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. Some of you know exactly what that's like. You go through this long, arduous, expensive process to provide a home for a child who may have not had one at all otherwise. Um, and then imagine that rather than bring this new member of your family into your house to share life and love and relationship, you drop them off somewhere else and say, see you around, good luck, you know. 
it's, it's not the way adoption or family works at all. There's no relationship. There's no ongoing intimacy. In the same way, we will not maintain relationship with the Father intentionally divorced from community. And this comes as a difficult pill to swallow in our hyper-individualistic sort of spiritual but not religious, you know, just me and Jesus sort of culture. Uh, One recent nationwide survey I read about this week concluded that 38% of American Christians' preferred method of discipleship is, quote, on my own, end quote. And it just doesn't work that way. Imagine me telling Abby and my wife the same thing. Hey, listen, my preferred method of maintaining our husband and wife dynamic is on my own. She might be like, much better. (laughs) I'm just kidding. She wouldn't say that, right? No, no. Um, There are 59 commands in the New Testament addressed to and intended for one another. How can you begin to go about accomplishing these commands on your own? Uh, Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way. Part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spiritually, for a Christian, can never be an individualistic quest. The pursuit of God outside of community, family, the church, the God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth is a liar. Since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Hence, a Christian spirituality is always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. Or, in the words of Jesus, the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is like it, to love other people. Community is not optional for the follower of Jesus, but this is actually good news. My second point is that community is non-optional for healthy living in general. Um, Regardless of your affinity for Jesus or lack thereof, human beings are relational beings. Um, In their book, Relational Soul, two leading psychologists discuss the role relationships play in the human healing process, and they say this fascinating thing. At the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. We cannot exist well without connection and communion with one another. This is why uh, a fulfilling career, a padded bank account, the ideal home, grouped with fractured relationships will still always equal misery. Life is better in the context of shared relationships, the highs and the lows. This is why Paul writes that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. Celebrate together. Grieve together. What is that sort of innate impulse that occurs immediately following fantastic news? You know, you, a baby's conceived after months of trying or, or you finally land a job after being unemployed or um, you get accepted to your dream school or you receive a, a clean bill of health after being ill for an extended period. The impulse is to share that moment with someone else, to call someone that you love, Uh, to get together, to celebrate, to announce it to smiling, kind, loving, familiar faces. It's sort of built in, you know, hardwired into the fabric of your being. And interestingly, though many of us don't lean by default into community when we suffer, 
any of you who have faced a tragedy with people around you can testify to the beauty of community in the season of suffering. Now, the third thing I want to say about community is that it is in the context of community that we are transformed. This is why we're here this evening. We're talking about spiritual transformation, how we're actually made to be like Jesus. And community, hear me on this, community plays a crucial role in spiritual formation. Ordinarily, we become like the people we spend time with in ways big and small, for better or for worse. So in the same way that bad company corrupts good morals, it's also true that he who walks with the wise will become wise. Of course, that's the surface level reality of life with other people. When we move a bit deeper, we learn that intentional relationships specifically woven together around the way of Jesus accomplish two indispensable feats in the life of a, of a disciple. The first is exposure, and the second is encouragement. So think about all the interpersonal conflict that you read about amongst the apostles and the communities of Jesus in the New Testament. Think back to the story that we read just a few minutes ago, the sort of vying for position. I want to sit at the right, I want to sit at the left, and the indignation, how dare you ask for those things. Had these 12 young men just stayed home in the first place, there would be no issues to speak of. No one would be arguing about who sits on what side and whose mom said what. Um, why is it that friends who get along wonderfully move in together and suddenly face conflict like never before? Um, the kind of proximity that is demanded by community casts a deeply revelatory light on what is inside of you, what is actually inside of you. As Pete Scazzaro, author of The Emotionally Healthy Church, describes this concept as your shadow side. You could call it the dark side if you like that. Um, he says it this way. Your shadow is the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts that, while largely unconscious, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. The trouble with your shadow side is that as often as it remains shrouded from the people in your life, it escapes your notice as well. And community surrounds us in such a way that our shadow side, as it were, is finally exposed. There's nowhere left for it to hide. And this is why many of us don't know a thing about our shadow side until we learn to operate in a community. And there's someone to say, why the heck do you do that? You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was having this dreadful week as a result of several emotionally taxing scenarios sort of converging on one another um, all at once until I was reduced to this desperate sort of state and I was this awful irritable tangle of anxiety and panic and I was talking to Abby uh, one afternoon in the midst of it and she said you are actively refusing to see hope in anything right now and she was absolutely right and that had absolutely escaped my notice until that moment. My tendency is to retreat into isolation when I'm unhappy. Uh, this is an aspect of my shadow side, and once there, I can sort of despair in private. Thank you very much. Um, again, the shadow side. Uh, but in community, the shadow is being illuminated and thus called out into the light. And a healthy community doesn't begin and end with the exposure element. It also is the home of encouragement. Community is an instrumental resource in our healing. We're going to talk about this more next week, but to make a complex idea simple for our immediate purposes tonight, on both a psychological and a neuro neurological level, the only way to heal relational wounds 
is with relationships. Community acts as a hub for healing, or it can act as a hub for healing, and as the place in which we uh, spur one another on to love and good deeds in the language of Hebrew. So if you would like to grow in maturity and mastery as an apprentice of Jesus, there is no root that does not include community. Uh, in their book, Slow Church, see Christopher Smith and John Pattinson write this, Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay, grow. People who leave, do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. And I think that term crucible is an appropriate one because community, for anyone here that's done it at all, you realize community is not easy. Um, in fact, it can be arduous, it can be painful, it can be difficult, emotionally taxing. But it is in community that we are formed, that we are shaped to become like Jesus himself. The fourth aspect of community I want to get across tonight is that it is not necessarily the same thing as a group of friends. This one bears repeating. To my estimation, this is an idea that invites emphasis because when we talk about community and friendships, two massive misconceptions immediately bloom. Some of you, I suspect, stands to reason, hear the term community and you think, sure, I have that. Do you? Um, ours is a, a time in which we can be connected to everyone and in community with absolutely no one. Uh, many of you, if I invite you to sort of retrieve your phone and open your contact list, you will reveal, you know, uh, dozens or hundreds of individuals and names that you can text or, or DM or email or comment on or follow or unfollow or even call, you know, if you're the old-fashioned type. Um, but who among this list or how many, what percentage of such a list knows you? Who on that list has seen your shadow side, so to speak? Uh, how many of them would be there in your time of celebration and in your time of sorrow? There is, of course, no such thing as an online community. I hear uh, people often gripe about their social media accounts and insist that I would certainly delete it if it weren't for the fact that there's no other way to stay in touch with people, you know. Um, and I'm thinking, stay in touch with what? Your grandma's Fox News updates and... Um, <laughs> How, how exactly are you in touch with like a, a selfie in front of a waterfall and a latte or something like that? Um, our modern notion of friend is not always the same concept as a New Testament community. Sometimes it is. I would argue often it isn't. Um, the second misconception that flares up when we talk about friends and community is this notion that unless some person earns a seat at your favorite sparkly best friend table, you can't possibly be in community with them. And I hear this all the time. I know it sounds silly, but communities struggle with honesty and with vulnerability. And uh, when we do, even a little bit of digging and finding out why, the reason becomes abundantly clear. Someone feels as though someone else hasn't earned their honesty and their vulnerability. And frankly, this is often the hurdle at which many bail on community altogether. 
But here again, friends and community are not the same thing. You may have your special best friend that likes the same things you like and, uh, and for whom you would openly discuss everything in the world, but chances are your community will not be populated, at least not entirely, by that sort of friend. You may well continue to have very close friends with whom you share your life that aren't in your community and who do not go to your church. That is absolutely fine. Keep them. Stay in community with them as well. When we begin to understand our communities in the New Testament sense, the same way that we traditionally understand modern church, then we can begin to see that it's unnecessary to be absolute best special friends with everyone in your church, and it's unnecessary to be only friends with the people in your church. But if our church isn't our community, then what the heck is the point? A community is a group of people coming together to learn to follow Jesus together. They could be close friends. Uh, perhaps they've just met and they don't know each other whatsoever. But they have been adopted into the same family. And so it matters not what age or background or ethnicity or stage of life they belong to. They, they resolve to learn the way of Jesus together. And if that, that, that uh, involves honesty and vulnerability, even if time and experience haven't grown them organically, as it were, with your other friends. Next on our list, community is the byproduct of commitment. Ours is this generation sort of caught in an interestingly recursive loop. Uh, we want to belong, but we also want to stay mobile all the time. Um, the devolving of the family has made us lonely and afraid, and we ache for community, and yet we would also like to keep our options open. Um, and I, man, I've seen from experience myself absolutely included Good grief, do we ever approach relationships with a consumerist mindset? Honestly, not to pick on anyone, I'm picking on myself, if you like. Just imagine I'm talking to me, I really am. Um, but I can honestly not tell you how many conversations I've had internally or with other people over the last couple of years um, with folks ready to give on, up on community altogether, and they're all asking the same question, which basically amounts to, what's in it for me? Um, these people don't meet my needs. They aren't quite like me. They don't understand me. They haven't had experiences like my experiences. I don't feel connected to these people. And yet, Jesus' approach to community is with a focus dedicated outside of himself. His focus is entirely on other people. If Jesus had in mind to surround himself by like-minded, affirming, obedient, best buddies, he did an awful job recruiting. Just the worst list ever. And... Here we are wondering, yeah, but what if some other group is cooler? Or, or what if some other group is easier than these wackos that I'm stuck with? Or, or what if some other group is more convenient, you know? We see this on a church-wide level here at uh, Van City. For some folks, being a part of Van City means they come to the gathering once or twice a month. Maybe they listen to a podcast. Uh, they hang out at other churches when they get a chance, and they follow, I don't know, maybe they follow the Instagram feed or something like that. Of course, that's not community, because community presupposes commitment from the outset. And for so many, commitment is simply too high a price to pay. If you want community, actual community, which can be safe and dangerous, open, accountable, beautiful, messy, long-term relationships, the exposure and the encouragement, commitment comes first. 
So what if our approach to our communities and to our church was, how can I serve other people, rather than how can my needs be met by other people? Next, community acts as a prophetic alternative to culture at large, meaning the shared or the uniqueness of shared life is not easy to ignore, especially in a time when community is in decline. For, for more than three years now, I've had breakfast with the same group of people at the same diner every single Monday morning at 8 a.m., and we have the same waitress every single week, Melissa. She's wonderful. Um, and we, we had not made it far into this tradition when Melissa finally said, what, what are y'all doing? What's the point of this thing? And I, I kind of asked, well, what do you mean? And she said, is it, is it a work meeting, you know? Or, or is it a book club? Are you guys playing a game? <laughs> um, and I told her we, we were just friends. We, we wanted to make space to faithfully connect and reconnect every single week, enjoy one another's company, have coffee and pancakes, and that was about it. And she said, wow, that's weird. You don't see a lot of that anymore. And that's just a, a, a tiny little silly sort of example. When people actually share life and burdens and resources and trials and celebrations and love and empathy and honesty and vulnerability, when a group of people deliberately chooses to share these things faithfully with one another, not just because it comes easy or because they're the same or they come from the same background, but they choose to do so, they are becoming what Jesus called a light on a hill. A beacon calling out to a lonely, isolated, grieving, messy world that says, see, see how the family of God loves one another. Come, come join us. And the church talks all the time about the example of a life well lived in the individualistic sense, which is important. But the example that's set by a community is every bit as powerful. In fact, the example of an individual who lives faithfully in community puts on display the life of Jesus all the more powerfully, I would argue. Community is the very thing into which we are inviting the world. Not to their own private, isolated experience with Jesus. We are inviting them into a community. And the invitation to become disciples is an invitation into the family of God. So we see that evangelism and life as disciples, justice, mission... All of these things are carried out within the context of community. When the world looks to see the church, they should see the community of God's people. Remember these words of Jesus. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Who is Jesus speaking to when he issues this command? His disciples. He's talking to the 12 in particular, his disciples. And he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you live in healthy community together, the world will know that you follow me. So uh, to end tonight, before we go to the tables, my final thought for this evening is that community requires time and intentionality. So allow me to sort of regale you with a case study I've seen and experienced more often than I'd care to, to admit. The story goes a little something like this. Um, some group of people are in uh, a community together, whether it's what we used to call missional communities, what we now call fan city communities, 
Um, there's a group of people, and then there'll be this couple there, for example. Um, and they're a lovely couple. They're great. Everyone likes them. They're pleasant. They're funny, whatever. But they're tremendously flaky, right? That's the big bummer. So for about a year, you know, this couple, they show up to family night maybe a quarter of the time or less. Uh, uh, when they do show up, they're constantly realizing they, they missed some big development because um, everyone had moved along in their shared Bible reading plan or, or maybe some big announcement had been made and they weren't there or some big struggle had been resolved and they weren't there. Um, and this couple isn't terribly concerned about intentionality either. When, when they're asked, are you, are you doing the reading that we committed to? They'll say, oh, no, I missed it. Or, or did, did you do that thing that you asked us to hold you accountable to? And they'll be like, nah, you know. And then uh, about a year goes by of the idealization period has now come to full stop. Um, the anniversary of the community and people are standing around figuring out where to go next and this couple stands up and says, you know what, we're actually going to move on. This isn't right for us. We were hoping for community, and this just doesn't feel like it. Um, to which I say, of course it freaking doesn't. What in the world are you expecting? <laughs> Did you imagine that without any commitment, without any co consistency or faithfulness or any demonstration of vulnerability or concern for anyone other than yourself, that your imagined ideal would somehow materialize before you like uh, one option among many on the buffet table of life. You know, no, community takes time. Uh, ordinarily, it takes a great deal of time to even begin to uncover the possibilities of relationship and vulnerability and intimacy. Everyone has to pony up. There is no, I'll give when I get. There's no, prove that you deserve my time and commitment, and then I'll see about it. Time and commitment are the admission fee to community, and they are the recurring payment as well. You give them both from the outset, and you give them both in perpetuity. Without offering both, no fair assessment can be made. Um, Cameron and I have this disagreement that we come back to all the time. And I'm going to bring it up now since he can't come up here and defend himself. Um, I guess can't is a strong word. <laughs> he does have a microphone. Um, but a while back, uh, he and Hannah set out to watch this Terrence Malick film called Tree of Life, um, which is this divisive, challenging sort of uh, movie that I enjoyed. So, um, so challenging is this movie that Hannah and Cam gave up about 20, 30 minutes into the movie, 20 minutes into the movie's near two and a half hour runtime. Um, and afterward, every time it came up, he's like, oh God, that movie is so awful. To which I would always annoyingly reply, well, actually you have no idea whether or not the movie was awful. You only know that you didn't care for the first 20 minutes. Um, and again, he can't say anything to defend himself, so I have officially won <laughs> the, the argument. <laughs> Um, and even though I use that as an aside to put that to rest forever, uh, <laughs> as silly as that is, I think that some of us imagine that intentionality um, is sort of tantamount to forcing community, you know? But I would argue that that's not a bad thing. Force that community all day long. And this hyper-individualistic, radically disconnected, overstimulated, altogether distracted world in which we live, the illusion of organic community magically materializing around us is absolutely absurd. You will have to fight for it all the time. 
Um, In this fascinating book, uh, The New Better Off, Courtney Martin writes this. If you want to live like this with other people in community, you need not move somewhere special. You need, not, you need only be intentional about asking them to embrace interdependence with you and then ritualize that commitment. We often fantasize about the village growing up around us spontaneously as if frequent reciprocity will magically appear in the cracks of our overscheduled lives. But when we move so fast, we don't see one another well enough to know where the needs are and when. We struggle to ask for help. Rather than wishing for intentional community, we have to doggedly pursue it. Make it concrete. Make a shared Google calendar. Just make it real. Even if you're earnest and vulnerable, creating communities like these, creating community at all, requires shared space and time. It requires a genuine commitment to slowing down. So to end tonight... Let me ask the question again. How do we approach all of this in the pragmatic sense? I would argue that it is not primarily through the Sunday gathering. Small uh, church though we are, and I love that about us actually. I love the amount of familiarity and intimacy and like family-like fun that we have at our gatherings. But just like Cam said, you and I cannot possibly be an intimate, vulnerable self-sacrificial community with a hundred people. It's actually altogether impossible. And don't misunderstand me, we do enjoy a certain dimension of family together on Sunday, absolutely. And there are elements of a community dynamic that spill over into this larger family we have as Van City Church in the macro sense. But 100 some odd men, women, and children can't walk walk with one another in the vastness and the minutia of daily and weekly and monthly and lifelong discipleship to Jesus. You just can't do it. You can't call 100 people with every celebration and every tragedy. You can't pray for 100 people with specificity week in and week out. You can't distribute resources and carry burdens and hear and be heard from by 100 people. But 10 or 15 Absolutely you can. Long before we launched our first Sunday gathering, we dreamed about one day becoming the sort of church that on Sunday looks like a gathering of smaller communities all in one room. And we aren't there yet, but that's still what we're after. We want to be a church that gathers every bit as much around dinner tables all over the city as we do around the bread and the cup on Sunday. And both play a vital role in our transformation. Both of them do. What we're doing here this evening and what goes on in homes around the city throughout the week in Van City communities, both are a part of our transformation as disciples of Jesus. This is an example well represented in the life of Jesus himself. On Sunday, he was in the synagogue teaching and conversation and dialogue, and throughout the week, he was with the disciples. So follow Jesus in that example. Uh, My wife Abby and I have been doing this community thing for years now. Uh, It feels like many, many years now, but for a long time. And I can verify with a certain level of expertise that there are good times and there are bad times. There are highs and there are lows, absolutely. Um, There have been highs and lows for both of us. Some of them we share. Others of them occur respectively. She's uh, down on it and I'm into it and then vice versa. Um, We've been disillusioned. We've been frustrated. We've let people down big time. Um, and we've been let down by people. 
we've also been loved and cared for and known and fought for and seen and heard and encouraged and stirred on and held accountable and prayed for and prophesied over and provided for in ways that I have never known in my life prior to living in community. It's not always perfect, and I'm sure if you ask anyone in my community in particular, they will readily confess that I, myself, am the source of said imperfection. Um, it is a beautiful mess. And some of you, I'm sure, are, are new here. Maybe you've been around and you've yet to take any steps toward getting into a community. And that's fine. There's absolutely no guilt or shame implied whatsoever. No one is going to ask you to leave or anything like that. Just, you know, at least tithe or something. Um, <laughs> Thanks. I need you to do more of them. But seriously, Todd. Um, so maybe, maybe for you, the invitation is to just move in that direction. Our next basics class is in February. Um, we'll keep you posted on how to sign up and all the details uh, about that. For those of you who are in community, which I know is a bunch of you, my encouragement is this. Persevere. Embrace it. Endure. Work hard, love, and give with wild abandon now more than ever before. When we begin the practices of Jesus together, our, our uh, spiritual disciplines curriculum in January, your community will begin a new part of its journey together. So I encourage you, come together again and again. Give it the time and the intentionality necessary, even if you're on year two or year three or you just started last week. Maybe some of you have been in community before, but not right now. Uh, you've been around the block. You've been a part of other churches. Maybe you've even been in a community here at Van City uh, and something went wrong. Something went awry. Someone let you down or violated trust or expectations weren't met. I get it. Honestly, I really, really do. But maybe uh, it's time to step out again and to give community another try because there is no other way to be a disciple of Jesus. So with that in mind, uh, let's pray together.